Welcome to the latest property podcast from EG. I'm Jess Harold, and today I'm joined by three lawyers from Herbert Smith Freehills to discuss their latest forearmed report, in which they have looked at 12 major issues for 2023, ones that pose potential risks for developers, investors, landlords and occupiers, and may even lead to real estate disputes in the year ahead. The report gets its name because, of course, forewarned is forearmed. And here to forewarn us are Matthew Bonnier, partner and head of real estate dispute resolution, Shanna Davison, professional support and knowledge development lawyer, and Martin Jarvis, senior associate in the planning team, all, of course, at HSF. Welcome, all of you. Thanks, um, Jess. Great to be here. Good. So, so Matthew, let's let's start with you. It's a little under two years uh, since we spoke on an EG podcast about the firm's 2021 forearmed report. And uh, obviously, uh, the world is a rather different place now. So I imagine there were plenty of new ground to cover in this one. There really were. And I think if you think back a couple of years ago, what an, uh, an unusual position that the, the UK economy was in. Um, nobody was sure about when things like lockdown would 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 come to an end. And obviously that has a, a, a direct connection with real estate because of the way in which um, the uh, different restrictions on enforcement uh, were being brought forward or carried on. And there were unclear signals from government in relation to that. None of those things are still there, but instead what we have is um, a, a, a economy which has changed considerably, particularly in the real estate sector in the last six to 12 months. Um, and then some of the repercussions of, of the changes of culture, um, the changes in the, in, in the different sectors in the, in the UK economy, all of those things are coming through now. Um, and we're able to make some more predictions. I must say, um, two years ago, we had never done this before, it was um, a crystal ball. We didn't want to make safe bets. So uh, we took a deep breath and put forward our, our, our um, estimations as to what was going to happen next. Um, and um, now revisiting that, it means that uh, we've got no, another chance to be bold and to come up with things which uh, hopefully um, give uh, listeners an extra um, bit of, of, of wally for how they, they view the future. Yeah, so as I mentioned, there are, there are 12 sort of big issues you picked out in your report, and, and that report uh, people can access on, on the firm's website. Um, but uh, we don't have time to go into all 12 today, so I just thought we'd, we'd, we'd yeah. talk through some of them, some of, some of the major ones. And uh, why not start with your number one? I, I don't know whether there was any ranking involved in, in how you approached it, but your, your first big issue was uh, an upturn in commercial and residential tenant activism. Uh, which uh, you, you foresee may include service charge challenges due to the deployment of the Building Safety Act 2022, which is, has obviously been uh, a massive talking point last year and continues to be so. Um, just to say there wasn't any um, ranking of our um, hmm. our issues, Jess, they were all um, so equally important we couldn't decide between them. So but we, we will start with what we've labelled as number one, as you said, so the increased service charge. In a downturn, we we always see a rise in service charge disputes. Um, we're obviously in a in a downturn at the moment, um, mm. and this is a relatively easy way for a tenant to increase their cash flow by mm. instructing a service charge consultant to review, query, and challenge their um, service charge accounts. That's nothing new. But when you overlay the new Building Safety Act, which obviously came into force last year then we expect to see a further upturn in these types of disputes. Now, the Building Safety Act is obviously a very lengthy, 
complex piece of legislation. It's got more regulations are yet to come um, and it would require a whole seminar just to do it justice. But to touch on a few of the things that are going to come out of it is that um, landlords of residential properties will be used to operating their service charges in accordance with both the lease and with underlying statute. So here I'm talking about things like the Landlord and Tenant Act 1985, which mm -hmm. protects tenants from expensive works without proper consultation. But on the flip side of that, commercial landlords are only really used to operating their service charges in accordance with the lease. So any disputes will come down to contractual interpretation. Now, of course, we've got things like the RICS service charge code, but that doesn't override the lease. Now, with the Building Safety Act, there's going to be a huge step change for landlords of mixed use premises because the commercial parts of those premises are going to attract some protection from the Act. So, for example, landlords of mixed use properties will not be able to claim for the costs of remedying building safety defects if they're responsible for those defects. And that applies to both the commercial and the residential parts of the building even if those costs would otherwise have been recoverable under the drafting of the service charges in the leases. There are other um, caps and restrictions for um, residential tenants in relation to recovery of other building safety costs. Those don't apply to the commercial tenants, but the landlords of those mixed use properties cannot increase the service charge costs for the commercial element to make up for any shortfall from the residential tenants, which are caused by those restrictions and caps. So as you can see, it's it's hugely complicated. Um, we're already starting to see some of these issues and disputes trickle through, and I think we can start to see many more. And uh, I'll, I'll whiz past your, your, your second point, but it kind of ties in a little bit with what I wanted to sort of bring together a couple of these themes, because uh, you, you've also predicted that there'll be, there'll be sort of continued political momentum for further residential leasehold reform in 2023, which has stalled a little bit during the pandemic after the, the Law Commission made its recommendations. Uh, but uh, you've also got this prediction uh, that I think maybe draws in elements of, of uh, the Building Safety Act implications and the possible re leasehold reform, which which might be of interest to our listeners, that, that you're, you're suggesting that the private rented sector may become less attractive as an investment class. So do all those things kind of feed into that prediction? They do, I think. Um, the um, the Building Safety Act is um, is such a colossal and important piece of legislation that everything else has to sit um, within its um, within its shadow in some ways. Mm. I think um, what we've seen is um, some interesting ideas, partly fueled by the fact that the government um, has been dealing with a turbulent parliament for a few years. It, Actually, leasehold reform is one of the few things which all three parties agree upon in principle. Um, and so it's one of those things which the government can get through on a vote. Um, and as always, that, that there was an awful lot of, of, of progress which was made during the really tough times of, of, of the more balanced parliament um, where that was the case. Um, but we're now seeing the, the products of that, one of which has been obviously the fact that ground rents um, and, on long leases have um, uh, been, uh, been outlawed. Um, but if you look at shorter leases, the things which are really sticking out uh, is this, uh, this question as to what's going to happen to ASTs. Um, if we're looking at the way in which they operate, one of the, the critical things about ASTs is the ability for the landlord to terminate. 
Typically, the reason that's attractive to a landlord is because if they want to sell, then they can sell with vacant possession. But um, if these changes come in and the Section 21 procedure is removed, then a landlord will have to have um, a, a statutory good reason um, for removing um, a tenant terminating the lease. And, mm -hmm. and that wouldn't include just wanting to have the property back so that they can sell it. Um, it would be much more like the 54 Act. We think that all of that impacts very much in relation to the way in which investors would look on the private rented sector. Um, and it's, you know, another facet of things which are to do with basically to do with the residential flats of which there are millions in the UK. Mm -hmm. And drawing together a, a couple more of your, your points, another major theme, obviously, um, throughout uh, the real estate industry uh, is uh, ESG. Uh, and the, the need to to tackle the, the impending uh, climate disaster and the, the importance of real estate's role in that. Uh, so you have a couple of, uh, sort of your, your major talking points that, that, that touch on this. And, and one of them is green lease provisions, uh, which you, you, you believe will become much uh, more widely adopted and, and more common in scope. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. We um, see that as the, the focus on ESG is it's going to continue to take centre stage. Um, as you say, we've got the, the huge climate issues. We've got the target for the net zero carbon emissions by by 2050. So I do think we're going to see that green lease clauses are going to become more common um, in mm -hmm. new and renewed leases. They're, I think I'd say that they're already fairly widespread in relation to energy efficiency, but I think there will be a trend that we see the focus um, changing uh, and increasing to things like um, water and waste management, sustainable materials for repairs and alterations, green transport measures, things like that I think we're going to start to see coming through. Um, in terms of how we're going to see them coming through, um, it's interesting in relation to the business lease renewals under the 1954 Act. I think in practice, we see that most of these clauses tend to be agreed between the parties. But again, it will be interesting to see how the courts um, deal with their inclusion. I think that they will be more susceptible to including them, um, particularly if they're framed as ultimately benefiting both the tenant and the landlord. Um, the, other in, the other area that is interesting in relation to green lease provisions is um, how we deal with disputes. Mm -hmm. uh, and enforcement of those clauses, because um, I don't think that the traditional methods of enforcement, things like forfeiture, specific performance, mm -hmm. injunctions, I mean, that's, you know, that's a sledgehammer to crack a nut. They're, they're unlikely to be appropriate for some of these green lease clauses, you know, particularly where the breach might be considered to be fairly minor or the landlord doesn't really suffer any loss. So I, th I think it'd be interesting to see how that develops, but we will see that ultimately including these green lease clauses will lead to behavioural change rather than having them for a strict method of enforcement. Absolutely and um, decarbonisation is obviously going to be a major theme uh, for developers to, to grapple with uh, going forward. Yeah I mean I, I mean since the 2050 net zero target was made in 2019 we've seen a real focus on the need to decarbonise development and that has Sort of working its way through the way that you look at how you redevelop um, and I think this has really borne out in the national press most clearly with the Marks and Spencer's Oxford Street <laughs> proposals this year and everything that's gone on with that. Um, I think actually the decision on the tulip I believe earlier 
last year was probably the first very visible domino of central government's interest in embodied carbon and the carbon cost of buildings. And that was a part of the reason why that development was refused. And then I think that development going through and the implications of that are what led to Michael Gove issuing the holding direction and the subsequent call-in for the MS proposals. And we've mm. seen statements from others in the government, Nicholas Boyce-Smith, in particular about that development highlighting that in his view the proposals to demolish that 1930s art deco building are deeply flawed mm. and that he also sees this as much more of a national issue than a storm in a central london teacup um it was save britain's heritage who were quite vocal about this at the inquiry into the proposals and they made various comparisons i think compared the carbon cost of the building of driving a car to the sun, which I'm not sure is the best comparable, but <laughs> certainly catches a headline. Um, but we we will definitely see a continued focus on the carbon cost of buildings and how that is a material factor in their determination. Um, obviously, we're yet to see the outcome from the inquiry, but we fully expect that how carbon is dealt with will be a material issue and it will possibly be a bit of a watershed moment for developers looking forward who are looking to redevelop and refurbish buildings. And I think looking at direction of travel where we can sort of see that heading is almost towards a more rigorous alternative assessment taking into account carbon or perhaps what could be termed as a sequential test of how you refit, refurbish and then redevelopment and how you can keep the structure of the building and really limit that carbon cost in line with Sort of whole life cycle carbon assessment guidance and circular economy principles and drawing that all together to essentially find the right solution for the right buildings um the flip side of this is that what you don't want to do is to stagnate development and have lots of prominent old buildings vacant because they can't be viably redeveloped because that would have serious knock-on implications for the economy and for the vibrancy of our town centers so that's something to balance and to avoid um, there's definitely a way to go on this, but there seems to be a shift in direction in that respect. Any bold predictions for what the MS building will look like in five years' time? Uh, no, I'll, I'll hold my powder <laughs> on that one. <laughs> um, obviously, with, with, with things like that, with, 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 the, uh, with developments like that, um, retaining elements uh, and or, or, or Knocking things down to the foundations and, and building from scratch have a massive implication on 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 cost uh, and on viability of development. And, and one of the themes that, that you've picked out kind of deals with aspects of that. That um, in the difficult climate that we're we're obviously facing at the moment, with, with or grappling with rising costs, and 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 that's true in the development industry as, as much as anywhere else. And you've you've sort of talked about how. Um, transactional defaults and, and uh, enforcement action will will continue to increase as a result of the, the challenging state of the market. Yeah, that's absolutely um, uh, our expectation. In fact, that links two of our predictions, one of which is in relation to the potentiality for there to be transactional um, default, um, for, for particularly for retail tenants, um, 2022, um, was obviously a tough year, as were the previous ones uh, for landlords of retail tenants. Um, there was possibly a change of a shift in the balance of, of possibly of what we might call power, um, mm. in the sense that uh, there was some trepidation about the scheme that was going to be 
running, uh, which did indeed run through 2022, um, to deal with the, 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 the arrears which had, had, had accrued during the, the lockdown periods. Um, but overall, that was a very little use scheme. Um, and as a result of that, um, there are tenants who are still now facing arrears. Um, and that's just on the retail side. Um, if the economy itself isn't um, frothy and bubbly, then um, we can usually expect more of that in, in, in the kind of landlord and tenant world. Mm. Um, the thing that links with that actually is in relation to our prediction in, in relation to the claims for professional negligence, um, because we have seen a commercial reset in values for the for, for commercial real estate. So um, it, during the last six months, there's some estimations of something like a 20% difference. Um, in those circumstances, it really tests the due diligence that was done on the for, for properties where an investor has, has bought. Um, and obviously, if they find that their property is underperforming, then they, they look to, to, to consider why. One of the people that they might go to think about is exactly what's happened, namely whether the, the seller was, in fact, completely correct or whether any misrepresentations in relation to what they were saying about about the merits of the property um, the other way they look which usually comes quite late in the cycle um, is against uh, professional advisors and so we do sometimes see these negligence claims and um, uh, in the market um, and those are things um, you know where um, typically they come right at the end of the cycle and um, once a, 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 an investor has, has tried everything else um, but claims against valuers and also um, claims against solicitors because, um, for example, you may find that a tenant is insolvent and then everything gets tested. You um, have to test possibly the forfeiture clause. Um, you almost certainly would have to test the, the way in which the guarantee works. And, um, you know, for since 1995 onwards, there have been very tricky things for lawyers to consider in relation to good harvest and so forth. Um, and it's only when push comes to shove in these kind of situations that you end up actually testing whether a guarantee um, is actually one that works or whether it's void. That may be one of your more troubling predictions for, for many of our listeners, I suspect, <laughs> uh, the, the risk of potential uh, negligence claims against them. Um, and obviously, it's no surprise that included in, in your, your list of topics is uh, the fact that um, we're still uh, grappling with uh, the, the, our change in our, our way of working post-pandemic and, and office requirements have obviously evolved um, during that period and, and uh, people are sort of uh, very much trying to, to settle on what um, what their requirements are and will be for, for, for the, the years ahead. So you're, you're expecting more tenants uh, to seek uh, early surrenders uh, or to, to seek to repurpose their offices, aren't you? Yes, we do see that as a as a a, a prominent trend. Um, every week, I think I read an article somewhere which talks about the new working week of Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Um, we, as a firm, have have adapted a, a a very agile approach to exactly how we operate. But we still think that our um, office is is central to our our culture. It's very important. Um, we love being in. Um, but equally, you can see other businesses where they've come to different conclusions. Um, and in those circumstances, you can see trends in relation to HQ space um, where, where typical requirements appear to be dropping. Um, and in those circumstances, landlords have got interesting questions to think about um, in relation to exactly whether the building they've got sitting on their land is the right one. Um, they've got then to the challenge of, of the carbon point. 
Um, but at the same time, they've got to think about how to use it as usefully as they possibly can and as profitably. Yeah. Um, one of the most uh, thriving uh, sectors looking to repurpose office space uh, is, of course, life sciences. So we, 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 we hear a lot about how uh, demand for new um, life sciences space and, and labs at, is very much outstripping supply. Uh, but that comes with uh, some additional challenges uh, for, for lease terms and, and, and may require some re- renegotiations, mightn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Actually, the, I mean, life science, the life sciences point in our prediction in relation to it, it has kind of two aspects. So I will pass over to Martin in a second, but um, spot on um, in terms of in, in terms of the UK economy, um, the tech edge of it um, is such a critical part. I see figures now where um, London, which was typically thought of as, as something which is a financial services capital city, has got a larger tech se- sector than it has um, a financial services sector. Um, and the interesting thing for us um, is that if you're talking about things like the life sciences, then the types of premises which are involved are not completely different. It's not like suddenly needing a warehouse, um, but instead um, one's thinking about things which are, have some similarities with offices. And this is where we see that there is a, some kind of attention um, or something which will, will cause at least some debate um, in the next year or two. Um, normally, of course, if, um, if a tenant comes to the market and says it wants to, to take premises, then um, the first thing it will do is negotiate with the landlord. And the landlord may look at its building and say, well, yeah, actually, um, I'm willing to to grant this with a covenant, which includes um, life sciences use. And by that, it can, in fact, mean that there could be a refit um, so that um, it could be used as a laboratory. Um, in most cases, that would be fine in the circumstances where the, the landlord and the tenant are free to negotiate whatever they like. Although landlords have really got to watch out in case, um, for example, they've got a freehold covenant or if they're a head leasehold landlord and they have a restrictive covenant in relation to the, the uses of the of the land which they've got. Um, but more interesting is the circumstances where you have an existing tenant um, that wants to change their use, in which case you're down to existing lease terms and whether or not that will allow a landlord reasonably to refuse. Um, and for longer term uh, investments and things like restrictive covenants and, and, and leases which are over 40 years, then there's the prospect that this change in the zeitgeist of London, the way in which people think about um, offices and how, how close or separate they are from, from laboratories, um, that could play out under Section 84 of the Law of Property Act 1925, where there are applications for um, the modification of covenants to allow that kind of a use. Uh, we really think that that's um, going to come to the fore with tenants or freehold owners making those kind of applications where they otherwise would be restricted. So that's the landlord and tenant side of it. I'll just pass over to Martin. Thanks, Matthew. Uh, So from a sort of planning development perspective, and as highlighted in the briefing, from a use class perspective, the introduction of use class D has been really helpful to facilitate the introduction of life sciences into buildings currently used for other uses in use class E. However, that's really only part of the issue that needs to be addressed as the alterations required to make a building or a part of it able to carry on life science uses will themselves be likely to require planning permission. So in this regard, one of the key issues we've seen to date is understanding the emissions from such uses and how those emissions are then dispersed in an acceptable manner. And as you can imagine, in a dense mixed use urban environment such as London, this can be much more of a difficult issue to address 
problem which can in theory be solved by amendments to the flu system, but this will also raise other planning issues such as visual or heritage impacts. It is an issue which is certainly capable of solution, but there does need to be some thinking applied to this at an early stage to confirm the feasibility of such proposals in their specific location and how the design needs to provide for this. Noting that not all life science uses are the same and that the emissions in terms of substance as well as quantity can vary significantly and differing design and plant solutions will be needed to meet the relevant emissions guidelines and there'll need to be a clear coordination between landlord and tenant to bring that forward in the most appropriate way. Okay, and uh, your final uh, major issue that, that you've picked out in your report is uh, a very important one. Um, it's the, the continuing implications of the, the sanctions regime uh, introduced uh, against uh, companies and individuals linked to Russia as in the wake of the, the invasion of uh, Ukraine. Uh, so you, you, you're predicting that landlords are going to be faced with, with sort of continuing uh, issues and, and risks as a result of the sanctions regime. We absolutely see that, and not 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 only is something which exists, and it's worth worthy of a reminder in any case um, that when um, looking at a tenant, for example, as a landlord or carrying out any kind of transaction, um, the ownership of that entity is now something which has to be the subject of a huge amount of due diligence in order to make sure that the, that the sanctions regime isn't um, tripped up on. And um, we see that particularly because there are some peculiar rules, for example, in circumstances where you have um, three shareholder owners, um, two of which, for example, might be subject to sanctions, one of whom isn't, then there's no individual um, shareholder that owns more than 50%. Um, so that shouldn't be subject to sanctions. In circumstances where you had a majority single shareholder of 51%, then they would. So none of it necessarily makes perfect um, logical sense, but obviously everybody knows why these provisions are there. We can only see that this is going to continue and probably adapt and morph. Um, what's very interesting is whether this is a trend. Um, it's a uh, it's an effective mechanism um, for government, uh, but in terms of the way in which it plays out, it's something which means that landlords and other investors have to do more work in order to know exactly uh, what they're dealing with. Uh, and I did say that was the final point, and it is the 12th uh, point in your report. But just to jump back a little bit, because we've got so close to touching on on absolutely <laughs> everything. So let's sort of challenge you to to uh, in in 30 seconds or less uh, tackle tackle. The, I think the last two that we uh, uh, didn't we we didn't cover in order. So you, it's been widely uh, covered uh, the the uh, the impact that the the what we still call the new telecoms code, even though I believe it is now five years old, uh, has had um, uh, in particular on, on the caseload of the, the upper tribunal lands chamber uh, since its introduction. Um, and obviously we, last year we had uh, made the first major Supreme Court case under the telecoms code. And you're, you, you've identified a, a structural defect that, that still needs uh, some resolution. Yes, we have. This is obviously in relation to the Vodafone and GenComp case that came before the tribunal in August last year. They have identified a major structural defect with the code, which particularly impacts developers. As you said, I, I won't go into all the details of it, but the headlines mm -hmm. are essentially if you've got a, um, a property that has an intermediate lease in place, 
then the developer is essentially shut out from being able to terminate that code agreement whilst the intermediate lease is continuing. The case is being appealed to the Court of Appeal um, and I've heard it's being fast-tracked so we can expect the hearing uh, to be listed in the first half of this year. But as per the Supreme Court case you mentioned, Jess, the Compton case, mm -hmm. it may go all the way up to the Supreme Court or it may even require um, legislative intervention to fix it. So we might be stuck with it for a while. I think what that means in practice is if that there are any developers who are facing this issue in the meantime, they should be seeking specialist advice on their options, but they may need to consider a surrender of the intermediate lease or rejigging of the holding structure. And uh, finally, finally, <laughs> um, you also uh, predicting possibly some unintended consequences of the uh, the upcoming changes to the business rates regime. Absolutely. Business rates is um, often not the highest profile um, part of, of, of the real estate uh, sector discussion, um, but it's an important one. There's an awful lot of money at stake. Um, we have seen some revolutionary changes. Uh, in circumstances where there was traditionally a five-year cycle, um, that changed because of um, the, uh, the the variations which actually lengthened um, the, the the cycle. But now we're moving to a three-year cycle, and the valuation office agencies then got this tough job of um, valuing two million or so uh, non-domestic properties and clearing all of those challenges within a within a quite a short window of three years. Um, but on the other side of it, it's another thing where we're looking at a, an additional um, obligation on a tenant or a, or a landowner, um, namely that they have to provide further information um, to the VOA and not only that, but keep it up to date. So um, we're going to see um, that possibly coming as a little bit of a surprise to um, uh, to businesses which have then got an additional um, point to, to have to, to bring in and make sure that they get right. Fantastic. I think that's pretty much all 12 done in, in under under 40 minutes. But of course, mm -hmm. uh, if people listening do want to sort of take a deeper dive, and I'm sure they will want to take a deeper dive into to many of these important issues to learn more, um, they can access the, the full report on your website. Is that right? That's absolutely right. Once it's uh, publicly available, then everybody can have a look. And um, if everyone's uh, keen to have a read, then they can also um, search uh, for us on LinkedIn and then uh, obviously we'll be publishing it there. And uh, we will have included uh, a link uh, to the report in the, the write-off for this podcast so that should make things nice and easy for everyone. Uh, mm -hmm. Thank you uh, to all of you for, for talking through these these 12 big issues for, for 2023. Thanks Jess. Thanks Jess. Okay. Thank you. Uh, you have been listening to EG Property Podcasts.